If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 7. As we continue our time in the Gospel of John, we'll be in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24 this morning. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one deed And you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under under four main headings. First of all, Jesus had unbelieving family members. Second, the world hates Jesus. Third, learn the origin of Jesus' teaching. And then fourth, judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus had unbelieving family members. The world hates Jesus. Learn the origin of Jesus' teaching. And judge with righteous judgment. 
Now, as John continues his account of the ministry of Jesus, he picks up here in chapter 7 and relates to us some of the events of Jesus' ministry that occur, obviously, after those of chapter 6. He begins by saying, after these things. Now, you may recall that at the beginning of chapter 6, John had given us a chronological marker for the events of chapter 6 by telling us that the Passover feast of the Jews was near. Now, Passover corresponds roughly to the season of our Good Friday and Easter. And so the events of chapter 6 would have taken place probably in what we think of in terms of March, April, something like that. And now here in chapter 7, John gives us another chronological marker by telling us in verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was near. The Feast of Booths ran for seven days from the 15th to the 21st of the Jewish month of Tishri, which falls in what we would think of as roughly September, October. And so John is telling us that for this period, between the feeding of the the 5,000 and the subsequent discourse there in chapter 6, up until the Feast of Booths, Jesus is walking, or in other words, living, in Galilee. He was there during this interlude from Passover in the spring until the Feast of Booths in the fall. And the reason why is clear enough. Jesus was walking in Galilee because he's unwilling to go to Judea. And the reason for his unwillingness to go to Judea is because the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, were seeking to kill him. Why were they seeking to kill him? Well, it's because of what had occurred back in chapter 5. Think back to chapter 5, verse 18, where John said, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also making God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. And indeed, some of those themes from John five eighteen are picked up here in this chapter by Jesus in his interactions with the Jews in our, in our passage. And we see him ask the question in verse 19, Why do you seek to kill me? We see him state the reason for their opposition to him in verse 23. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? The point is that the events of chapter 5 are uh, in the background for what is taking place here in chapter 7. The fact that the Jews in Judea had tried to kill him, had deterred Jesus from going into Judea for a while, and now that Jesus comes back and is in Jerusalem, he comes back and speaks, and he alludes to their murderous intentions and the reasons for their murderous intentions, those events of chapter 5. And so, being in Galilee for that period of six months after the feeding of the 5,000, Feast of Booths comes around, what was Jesus going to do? Is he going up to the feast or not? The Feast of Booths was reportedly the most well-attended of the Jewish feasts at this point in time. The Feast of Booths, of course, is sanctioned in that passage in Leviticus 23 that, uh, that we read this morning in our Old Testament reading. Also, we find it referred to in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. And so, uh, just to uh, put it out there for us again, Leviticus 23, verses 42 and 43, right at the end of the chapter, the Lord commands this, You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This feast was also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23:16, And therefore, the passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, kind of brings the two of these things together. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths 
Seven days after you have gathered from your threshing floor and your wine vat, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male and your female servants, and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. And so this is a this is a feast of rejoicing. They were to celebrate the, the harvest and the Lord's bounty to them. And at the same time, they were to remember how the Lord had taken their people out of Egypt and preserved them in the wilderness when they lived in booths, when they lived in temporary shelters during the years of the wilderness wandering. And so this is a, this is a popular feast. Many, many people went up to Jerusalem to take part in it. And now we read here in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus' brothers, perhaps sons of Mary, or perhaps brothers more broadly in the sense of kinsmen, cousins, or something of that nature, these brothers say to Jesus, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now his brothers encouraged him to, to make a name for himself. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Show yourself off. Show off your works at the feast. This, is, this could be a big publicity stunt. This indeed is the, the biggest gathering of Jews to any of the annual feasts. This is prime opportunity for Jesus to make himself known. And so this is their advice to Jesus. Make a name for yourself. And from a worldly perspective, that makes sense, right? If you're trying to establish yourself as someone important, you don't want to be spending all of your time in the middle of nowhere. You need to go to the city where the crowds are. You need to go there when those crowds are there. Again, the Feast of Booths seems like an opportune time to do so. The reason Jesus' brothers are acting from this worldly perspective and encouraging Jesus to make a name for himself from that worldly perspective was because at this point his brothers were still worldly. They did not believe in him. That's what John says in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And I think we need to consider this dynamic carefully. Here we have these men who are family members of Jesus Christ, and yet they did not believe. Why did they not believe? Was it because Jesus had done something wrong? Was it because Jesus had somehow failed in his witness to them? Well, obviously not. Jesus was a perfect witness. Jesus never blemished his testimony by sin, by lack of faithfulness, and yet his brothers here did not believe. Now this is a something that is worth our consideration, I think. Because often when a believer has a family member who is not a believer, or when a Christian has a, has a friend or family member or a colleague who goes off the rails by rejecting the truth of God and embracing the lies of the world, it is not uncommon to hear some self-incrimination. In other words, the believer in these types of situations will sometimes blame themselves that their friend or family member is not a believer. And so, just for instance, I a few weeks ago was looking at an article that was, was written a few years back by a, a man who uh, had been a uh, New Testament professor at a university. And this New Testament professor was interacting with a book that was written by a former colleague of his. This colleague of his had been an ethics professor. And so he had these two men. Uh, they were both professors at the same university. And this, uh, this ethics professor had changed his views and had written a book where he had endorsed some, some ungodly thinking. 
And this article was written by this New Testament professor interacting with his former colleague who had gone off the rails, so to speak. And this New Testament professor said that the situation pointed to his failure to live out the gospel as effectively as he could have before his friend. And so he was, at least in part, placing some blame on himself for the fact that his former colleague had come to adopt some ungodly thinking. Now, had this man, this New Testament professor, been a perfect witness to his friend? Well, I'm sure he, I'm sure he hadn't, right? We all stumble in many ways, is what James said. Had this man failed in some aspects of his relationship with his friend? Well, I'm sure he had. But were his imperfections, were his sins, whatever they may have been, the reason for which his friend went off the rails? Well, obviously we can't answer that question conclusively. The what-if questions defy absolute answers because we live in a fallen and messy world and the, the direct lines of cause and effect are not always crystal clear to us. Obviously, none of us are perfect witnesses. None of us are perfect in our testimonies for Christ. And sometimes our wickedness is the means by which others are led to blaspheme God. And so Paul writes in Romans 2, 23 and 24, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Hypocrisy is obviously bad. And those who are closest to us have the most opportunity to see it. If or when we are hypocrites. Hypocrisy can have bad effects and we should avoid it, obviously, and seek to be sincere as we follow Christ. But with that said, let's understand that our hypocrisies and our shortcomings are not the only reasons why people don't believe in Jesus. Jesus was perfect. And still at this point, his brothers did not believe. And so what about the unbelieving friend that you may have? What about the unbelieving family member? Did your behavior contribute to where they're at spiritually? Possibly. As we said, our sins can cause the name of God to be blasphemed. And so it was that Nathan charged King David of this very thing in regard to his adultery and the murder of Uriah in 2 Samuel 12 14. But then again, maybe, just maybe, the quality of your witness and your faithfulness has nothing to do, really, with the bad spiritual condition of those who are close to you. Not even a perfect witness and a spotless testimony guarantees anything, right? Jesus is sinless, and at this point, his brothers did not believe. And so, it depends on the situation. Again, the lines of cause and effect are not always as straight and clear as we would wish that they were. If you're convicted of sin in this regard, that your behavior has led others astray, then I urge you to treat it like you would any other sin. Repent and look to Christ. In Him, there is fullness of grace to cover all sins, even hypocrisy by which others are led astray. There is forgiveness and grace in Christ for that sin as for any other There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the same time, we need to recognize that even if you do everything right, there's no guarantee that others will believe in God. Ultimately, the Lord calls us to be faithful. 
not to achieve certain quotas or to achieve certain tangible results. Again, at this point in his ministry, Jesus still had unbelieving family members. And this brings us to our second point for this morning, which is the world hates Jesus. As Jesus was discussing this question of going up to the feast with his brothers, Jesus indicates that he was not going up to the feast. That is to say, not yet going up to the feast. For Jesus, the the timing and the, the manner, the way in which he was going up to the feast was important. It was to be done in accordance with God the Father's plan and purpose. And thus, at this point, when he's talking with his brothers, the time was not right for him to go up. But for his brothers, the timing was not so crucial. They could go up to the feast whenever they wanted, and it wouldn't really make much difference. And Jesus' words in verse 7 explain why the timing for them will not make any difference. They are of the world, and therefore the world does not hate them as it hates Jesus. Again, remember the reason why Jesus had been staying away from Judea and Jerusalem was because of the hatred of the world. The world, in the sense of the Jewish leaders, had wanted to kill him. But the world couldn't hate his brothers because they were still unbelievers. As of yet, they still belonged to the world. But notice here the reason that Jesus assigns for why the world hated him. This is why it hated him then. By extension, this is why it still hates him today. Jesus says, It hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. There it is. The world hates Jesus because he testifies to the world that its deeds are evil. And we have to reckon with that. We have to own that. We have to receive it as a matter of fact that the world hates Jesus and the world therefore will hate us if we belong to Jesus and follow him. That's why we read from John 15 in our unison reading this morning. Jesus said that if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me. Hated him before it hated us. Now it's been said before that the world would have never crucified Mr. Rogers. Right? Mr. Rogers is a nice guy, at least as he presented himself on TV, and he never would have gotten himself into trouble by testifying to the world that its deeds are evil. He's just a nice guy, and it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. If that's the way you operate, and if that's the only way that you operate, people will like you. Or at the very least, they'll leave you alone. It becomes a very different story, however, when you start saying that what someone does is evil. That's a sure way to get at least somebody upset and angry. Now, Jesus was certainly kind. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. But at the same time, he was very clear and very bold in speaking about the evil deeds of the world. And if you read the Gospels clearly, it's very evident that the world hated Jesus. Jesus calls out the Jews for their failure to believe what Moses had written. And as a result of that, their failure to believe in him. He testified that it's not what entered into the man that made the man unclean, but it was what what came out of the man that made him unclean. That is, the, the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, the murders, adultery, the deeds of covetousness, and 
and wickedness and so forth, the envy, the slander, the pride, these things proceed from the heart of man. And these things defile the man. Jesus was clear in calling out hypocrisy when he saw it. The scribes and Pharisees would tithe their mint and dill and cumin, but they neglected the things that were of greater importance in the law. Those things related to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus said that they were experts at setting aside the law of God so that they could follow their own traditions. And if we need even greater clarity on the way that Jesus testified that the deeds of the world are evil, we need look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus expounds the fullness of the Old Testament law, he helps us to understand that just because we can keep ourselves from perhaps violating the letter of the Old Testament law, that does not make us innocent of sin. You might be able to have stopped yourself from committing adultery. What about what's going on in your heart? You might have been able to prevented yourself from murdering someone. What about the hatred? What about the intense animosity and the anger that you feel towards someone? Jesus exposes the, the full intent of the law and therefore shows us our sinfulness, therefore testifies to our deeds that our deeds are evil. And this is why the world hates Jesus. Never mind the fact that Jesus came to deliver the world from its bondage to sin. Never mind the fact that he came to save the world, not to condemn the world. Never mind the fact that he came to show us the way out of sin and death when he said, repent and believe the gospel. Never mind the fact that he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Never mind all of that. They can just safely push that to the side. Jesus testified that the deeds of the world are evil, and they hated him for it. And the world still hates Jesus for this. I once read a a poem, and... uh, the uh, author of this poem was, was kind of trying to, to push back on uh, postmodern takes on, on Christianity and religion in general, and he was kind of being satirical. He said, we think Jesus was a good moral teacher, but we think that his good morals were bad. Isn't that, isn't that the way that the world thinks? They'll recognize on the one hand, Jesus is a good moral teacher, but when it comes right down to it, they don't think much of his teachings. They don't want to follow them. The world hates Jesus for calling its deeds evil. The world hates us for it. We need to to know this. We need to understand this. We need to accept this. And don't be surprised that the gospel is offensive to the world. Don't be surprised that people don't come to church when you invite them. Now, by all means, invite them to come. We want people to come. You should be inviting them. But don't be surprised when they don't show up. Don't be surprised when the gospel is rejected, when you share it. You should be sharing the gospel But don't be surprised if it is rejected. Paul speaks to the reason of this, and he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma of life to life. Understand that when you speak the gospel, when you speak the word of God to the lost, this is going to be a fragrance of death to those who reject it. Those kind of people are not going to think too much of you and of your presentation of the gospel. But it's a fragrance of life to those who receive it, 
those who believe in Christ. And so the world hates Jesus. And if we look at Christ and if we judge him by today's worldly standards, how much more of a hater could Jesus be? Isn't it about the most hateful thing that you could say to someone is that their deeds are evil? And so, if we'd be faithful to Christ, faithful to his message, we better not have unrealistic expectations about the way in which this is going to go down when we present the gospel to the world, when we present the word of God to the world. If we start out and are expecting to be popular and successful, then we might find that when we are not, that we're tempted to change the message around so that we can try to change the response around, right? Not not getting too too many people to sign up for repenting and believing gospel, then maybe we need to, to change something around. We say, oh, the world doesn't like being told that its deeds are evil. We better not even bring that up. Oh, there are certain categories of sin that are certainly in vogue and the world loves these sins. Well, maybe, maybe we better just preach about the sins that the world currently hates and kind of leave to the side those sins that the world currently loves. Or else, if we don't do that, they won't like Jesus and they won't like us. You see, this is the kind of mess that we can get ourselves into if we start out with the supposition that Jesus is going to be popular and that therefore something is wrong with our presentation of Jesus and the gospel if Jesus is not popular. The world hates Jesus. The world hates his message. The world hates his followers because Jesus testifies that its deeds are evil. And so after Jesus has this exchange with his brothers, about going up to the feast or not, he remained in Galilee for some time, as we find there in verse 9. And uh, it's not yet time for him to go up, but then later he did go. He goes, though, as if in secret. Remember again, his opponents are trying to kill him. But nevertheless, he goes up to the feast. And meanwhile, kind of in the background chatter, everyone is talking about Jesus. The Jewish leaders who'd been seeking to kill him back in chapter 5 wanted to find him and arrest him. They're asking, where is he? Is he coming up to the feast? They were expecting him, but couldn't find him. And at the same time, the crowds are starting to grumble among themselves about Jesus. And you've got different opinions weighing in. Some saying, oh, he's good. Some say, no, he deceives the people. But notice there that the crowds are kind of keeping their opinions to themselves. They're not wanting, not wanting their uh, chatter amongst themselves to, to reach to the level of the authorities. They're afraid of the authorities, and so they don't speak openly about Jesus. But then, in the middle of the feast, Jesus breaks out of this mode of secrecy. He goes to the temple, and he begins teaching. And his teaching is, is amazing. Here on this occasion, it draws forth the question from the Jews, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? They were surprised that a man who had not been trained in their rabbinical schools had such learning and such understanding and such ability to teach as Jesus did. And this is, this is a common response to the teaching of Jesus. People were amazed. And so we find at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of Matthew 7, that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. After Jesus first began teaching in Galilee, we find in Mark 1.27 that the crowds are amazed and they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits 
and they obey him. The teaching of Jesus was, was amazing. He knew the scriptures and he taught the truth and he taught the truth with authority. And it left his, his hearers astonished. And we'll see this even again next week, Lord willing, here at the end of, of chapter 7 as, as these men that had been sent by the, the priests to arrest Jesus say, never has any man spoken like this man. And so the, the crowds here at the Feast of Booths express this astonishment at Jesus' teaching. And then Jesus responds to them by saying, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. And this is to say that the teaching that he was delivering was not his and his alone, but rather his teaching had come from God the Father. And therefore Jesus says in John 16, 15, that all things that the Father has are mine. And thus, if this teaching which Jesus was delivering belonged to the Father, then it belonged to him as well as the Son of God. And therefore he was preaching and proclaiming these doctrines, these divine doctrines. His point here was that his teaching was not something that he was delivering simply from himself and from himself alone. Remember, the Jews of, of the day liked to give a long genealogy of their, their thoughts. Rabbi such and such said this, and Rabbi such and such thought that, and on and on it would go. And Jesus insists here that his teaching didn't belong to himself alone. His teaching had a pedigree as well. His teaching came from God the Father. And then Jesus puts out a test by which his teaching may be discerned, whether his teaching is really from God or whether it is not. And so he says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now what what does Jesus mean by this? I think the Words of D.A. Carson are helpful in this regard when he said, The point is not that a seeker must attain a certain God-approved level of ethical achievement before venturing an assessment as to whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God, but that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. This is a faith commitment. God then fills the seeker's horizon God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like and don't like of Him. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. You see, you see the point that, that Carson was getting for is that there's a, there's a certain level of sincerity. Are we, willing to, are we willing to obey God? Are we willing to submit ourselves to God? Or are we just kind of sitting back and philosophizing, theorizing about this. J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, Clear knowledge depends greatly on honest obedience and that distinct views of divine truth cannot be gained unless we try to practice such things as we know. Living up to our light, we shall have more light. Striving to do the few things we know, we shall find the eyes of our understanding enlightened and shall know more. This is, this is the way that it works in regard to divine truth. It's not the mere philosopher or the man who delights in, in theorizing who is fit to judge the teaching of Jesus. What does such a one like that know of Jesus' teaching? It's all a matter of, of speculation. For him it's just, as it were, an untested theory. Maybe this is true, maybe it's not. On the other hand, the person 
who's actually willing to do God's will, the person who is willing to step out in faith and obedience in regard to what he or she has learned, this person will learn by experience the truth of God firsthand. This kind of person will come to know that the teaching of Christ truly is of God because it has the power to change their life. They will know that the teaching of Christ is not simply a meaningless and vain doctrine which has its origin in a man. They will know rather that Christ's teaching comes from God because of its power and because of its correspondence to reality. The person who is willing to do God's will knows from first-hand experience that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As we sometimes say, the proof is in the pudding. It's not without cause that Paul charged Timothy. When he commanded him to fight the good fight, he commanded him in connection with that to maintain faith and a good conscience. In other words, faith and godly conduct must go hand in hand together. And if we are not willing to do God's will, then we will not have the practical insight that is necessary to determine whether the teaching of Jesus is merely of man or whether it is of God. And we have no one but ourselves to blame for that if we are not willing to do God's will. And so then, find out the origin of Jesus' teaching. Find it out for yourselves. Learn for yourself that the teaching of Jesus is truly from God the Father. That this is not the mere words of a well-meaning Jewish man. But that this is rather the teaching of God the Father and God the Son. How can you learn firsthand whether Jesus' teaching is from God? You must be willing to do the will of God. In other words, there must be sincerity in your seeking. Your sincerity in seeking after the origin of Jesus' teaching is going to be evidenced by your obedience. It's worthwhile to notice here the way in which Jesus phrases what he says. He didn't say that if anyone does God's will perfectly... Then he will know of the teaching. He says rather, if anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching. And so the question is, are you willing to do God's will? So many of Jesus' hearers were not willing to do the will of God. They were hypocritical in that respect. They probably would have claimed that they were willing to do the will of God, but they were actually more invested in their culture and their traditions than in seeking and submitting to the will of God. And and we see this right, right here in the passage before us. And so in verse 19, Jesus asks, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet not one of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Moses gave the law to the Jewish people, and if you had asked these Jewish men if they professed obedience to the law, I'm sure they would have said yes. But when push came to shove, they were not really willing to do the will of God. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead and were willing to murder him in plain contradiction to their own law in order to do what they wanted to do. People who are unwilling to obey the will of God, which they already know, are not going to be in a position to evaluate the teaching of Jesus. It's only those who are willing to do the will of God who will know of the doctrine, whether it be from God or or from man. And so learn the origin of Jesus' teaching and learn it by submitting yourself to the will of God. Are you willing to do the will of God? 
And this brings us then to our fourth point for this morning, which is judge with righteous judgment. In these final verses that are leading up to verse 24, we see how Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. They like to think of themselves, again, as submissive to the law of Moses. But Jesus asks them, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd listening responds by saying, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Now, this is probably just their way of saying you're, you're out of your mind. Here, on this occasion, I doubt that, that the crowd at large thought that he had a demon. Now, certainly, in some of the, the Jewish people's interaction with Jesus, when they accuse him of being demon-possessed, they probably really meant you have a demon residing inside of you. Here, this is probably just, just a way of them saying you're, you're out of your mind. And the crowd probably thought that he was out of your mind. They thought he was paranoid, probably, because they probably bulk of the crowd probably had no idea that there were Jewish leaders actually seeking to kill him. They were probably ignorant of them. Again, many of these are people who have come up from various parts of the country or maybe even from around the, uh, the diaspora of the Jews and had come up to Jerusalem for the feast. They probably had no idea what the Pharisees and the priests were, were plotting. And they thought, wow, Jesus, you are really paranoid. Why? Who, who is seeking to kill you? But then Jesus gives the reason why the leaders were seeking to kill him. And again, he points back to the healing of that lame man in chapter 5. He said, I did one deed, referring to the healing, and you all marvel. It had taken place, remember, on the Sabbath, and therefore the Jews were seeking to kill him. But then Jesus goes on and he shows them something interesting. He shows them that based on their own practice, their own practice of the Sabbath law, they should not be angry with him. The Lord had commanded Abraham that the males among his descendants were to be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born. And it was Jewish custom to circumcise even on the Sabbath day, when that was the eighth day after the birth of a boy. And so Jesus is basically asking the people here, what, what's the deal? You guys understand that it's okay to circumcise on the Sabbath so as to keep the commandment in regard to circumcision why are you angry at me because I made this man's whole body well on the Sabbath? And verse 24 sums up the point that he's trying to communicate here. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. To the Jewish person of his day, on a surface level of things, it probably looked like Jesus' healing of the lame man on the Sabbath was a violation of the Sabbath law. According to the Jewish additions to the Mosaic law, it would have made sense to view that healing as a violation of the law because as it, as it practically worked out, the, the Jews basically viewed their additions as equal to the law. Their tradition was essentially held on the same level as the actual Old Testament law. But this was mere appearance. If the Jews had formed a righteous judgment, if they had actually stopped and thought about what practices they permitted to be performed on the Sabbath, and why they permitted those practices to be performed, then they should have understood that this healing was fine, that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and that making this entire man well was indeed a good thing. But the words of Jesus here in verse 24 have a much broader application than simply this, this present issue as to what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath. The words of verse 24 are applicable across the board to every issue. How many problems in our lives 
are due to the fact that we judge merely by appearance and fail to form a righteous judgment on the subject. How many fights and disputes take place because we're merely looking at the surface of things and we don't kind of peel back the layers and see what's going on under the surface? Now, now children, think about this for yourselves. How many of you have heard your parents warn you about some, something that you're doing or something that you're thinking about doing? You want to climb a tree, you want to go down the slide backwards, head first, whatever, and mom or dad says, says, hey, this is not a good idea, you're going to get hurt if you do that, and you're thinking, well, I saw big brother do it, surely, it's, it's going to be fine by me, and you go ahead and do it, and what do you know, every once in a while, you get hurt, right? You need to stop judging by mere appearance and make a righteous judgment, and this, indeed, was the beginning of the troubles of the human race. If you think back to Genesis, we read in Genesis 3, 6 that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. After the serpent attempted her, she looked at the tree, she looked at the fruit, she thought, gets the green light from me. What was she doing there? She was judging by appearance, instead of actually judging with a righteous judgment. Righteous judgment would have told her that God had said that this fruit is off limits. Therefore, regardless of what it looks like, I better leave it alone. Was this not something of which even Samuel, godly Samuel, needed to be reminded when he was called by God to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king of Israel? He saw the firstborn of Jesse and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance with the height of his stature, Because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Wasn't this tendency also what got David into trouble with Bathsheba? From the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. David here all throughout was judging based on mere appearance. Here is a beautiful woman. He's the king. He wants her. He'll get her. How bad could it be? David didn't realize that it would be very bad in the end. He was judging according to appearance. He liked her appearance. He wanted her and he judged that his own desires were more important than the marriage bond. And he was willing to have a man killed and attempt to cover up his sin. Righteous judgment would have turned him back from sin. Would have turned him away. But David wasn't looking below the surface. He was just looking at the mere appearance of things. He wasn't judging the entire situation with righteous judgment. He wasn't judging anything about the situation from righteous judgment. For those who judge by mere appearance, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be rejected. And so Isaiah says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Who wants to follow someone like that? Judging from mere appearance, just looking at the surface of things, there's nothing to attract us to Jesus. And this is especially true when we contemplate the crucifixion. Who would want to follow a man who was stripped and beaten and killed in such a hideous and shameful manner as to die on a cross? This is why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews stumbling block and the Gentiles' foolishness. 
The Jews and Gentiles that he's speaking of there are just, just judging by appearance. It's stumbling block to the Jews. Why would their Messiah be crucified? It's utter foolishness to the Gentiles. Why in the world would you follow someone like that? If you're judging by mere appearance, of course Christ is foolish. Of course Christ is a stumbling block. But to judge of Christ with righteous judgment is to see him for who he is. As the long-promised Messiah, as the Son of God who came into the world to defeat the devil and to die in the place of sinners, as a sacrifice in our place that we might have an atonement for our sins and to be reconciled to God forever. This is what it is to look at Jesus with righteous judgment. And when we see Christ in that light, we see him, again, to go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we see Christ as the power of God. We see Christ as the wisdom of God. We can see this was God's mighty power coming to earth to save me the sins that I've committed. This is God's wisdom, his great plan made manifest. This was great and wonderful that the Son of God should come into the world to die for me. So I say again, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The judge according to appearances is shallow. The judge with righteous judgment is to step back for a moment and think and consider things as they are. To judge with only by mere appearance is, is foolish and it ends in destruction. As we've seen, those, those examples of Eve, King David, and so on, the end is destruction. To judge with a righteous judgment is to accept God's value judgments as the standard by which all things must be measured and to judge according to his word. To judge with righteous judgment will lead us to love God and to love his gospel and to love his ways. The Huguenot preacher Jean Dale was absolutely correct to say that it is the chief work of Christian wisdom to be able to separate the true from the false, the useful from the hurtful, and in a word, the good from the evil, notwithstanding the false and specious colors under which objects often present themselves to our senses, to reject constantly the evil, however imposing and charming may be the face which presents itself to us, and always courageously to retain the good, however sad and frightful may be the mask under which it is disguised. This is what it is to judge with a righteous judgment. It's to peel back the layers and see what actually the truth of the situation is. If you're just looking at the outer shell, you're often going to be deceived and led astray. And this is why Paul prayed for the Philippians that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And so stop judging by mere appearance. Judging according to sight leads to trouble, leads to sin, and eventually it leads to hell if it is followed to its logical conclusion. But if you judge with righteous judgment, it will lead you to righteousness and eternal life because it will lead you to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. May God grant us all to judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would give us, give us wisdom, give us discernment so that we can judge according to the truth and not by merely according to the way things present themselves to us. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your truth. Pray that you bless us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.